Amen. Thank you, worship team, and welcome. So glad you all chose to be with us on this Easter Sunday. And you all have had a little extra rest, so you should be full of energy, ready to go here this morning. I've got my uh, Easter egg shirt on. We're ready to dive in. Let me pray before we start. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this chance already to celebrate your resurrection. We thank you so much that the opportunity and the freedom that we have to gather and do that. We thank you for these wonderful musicians leading us already this morning. Now we invite you to speak to us through your word. We gather because we believe that still happens, that you meet us exactly where we're at. We invite you, your spirit, spirit to connect with us here this morning, that we'd be free of distractions and able to engage with what's taught here now. God, I just ask that you would be great. I would be small. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, well, you see on the screen there our title for this morning's message, Easter Changes Everything. And changes everything is the big idea. A lot of you, when you think back and reflect on your days, you can think of different things, different moments in your life that you say, man, from that point forward, things were different. You know, things changed after this. It might be as early as your junior high years. You remember your very first crush, the first introduction to the opposite sex. And you're like, wait a second, this changes everything. Maybe a little bit later in life, getting your driver's license. Finally, freedom. I've been talking with Chad, his oldest daughter is getting her permit. And he's introduced to the fact that that changes things, right? For you, maybe it was your, your wedding day. That definitely changes things for sure. And probably the one, if there's ever going to be an amen moment in this service, how about having kids, your first child? That's a, that's a change everything moment for sure. You know it's not going to be the same on the other side of that event. Maybe for you, maybe it's something else. Maybe it was your kid's first haircut. Take a look at the screen here. This is real time. I'm crying because, look, Teddy found the buzz cutter. Eloise, turn around, turn around, turn around. Why'd you let brother do that? She said she wanted me to do that a lot, and so I did it. And, okay. And she to All right, show it's me. just hair. It's hair, and it's going to grow back, and mommy's okay. Oh, that's a change everything moment. For the, for the boy, you're thinking that's maybe like a month for the girl. Ladies, how long does that take? Uh, not overnight, for sure. Some of us have that experience with our own kids. None of our kids got into clippers, but you get the idea of this change everything moments. We all have them. And really, when we think about the Easter service, and this is amplified by a thousandfold, is what was happening on the cross Things were coming, moments were happening so quickly at a furious rate of change everything moments. Things that changed eternity, the direction of everything happening on that cross is a change you moments for sure. Still enough that we're talking about them a couple thousand years later, right? Well, I'm excited to work through this section of scripture. If you wouldn't mind turning with me, we'll be in Matthew chapter 27 here this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one in the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to steal from the church. There you go. Chapter 27, verse 45 is the first moment that happens that I would propose changed everything. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land 
until the ninth hour. I will we'll stop there for a little bit of explanation. That would be easy to just kind of peruse past that and be like, oh, no big deal. But think about that for a moment, how the timing plays out. The sixth hour was at 12 noon. Jesus has already been on the cross since 9 a.m. for three hours. At 12 noon, everything goes pitch black. From 12 noon to the ninth hour, which would have been three o'clock, for three hours, there's a complete blackness that covers the land. A lot of people have tried to give human explanation to this, like, oh, that must have been an eclipse. Any of you ever see an eclipse of the, of the sun? How long do those last? I don't know, seven or eight minutes, maybe, if you're, if you're lucky. So this, this, this was not an eclipse. And in fact, the Passover took place during the full moon. So there's no human possibility that it was an eclipse. This was a supernatural event from God. And you think about it for a moment. What does darkness do? What does, what does, what does darkness do? All of a sudden, when things go black, right, you start to get a little bit more on edge. You're checking your wallet. You're looking at the person next to you. You're, you're do that now. No, I'm just kidding. But the, the idea when things go dark, your senses are heightened. You're more aware of things. You're, you're a little bit more on edge. And here's the unique thing is when this darkness occurred, this was the exact time on Friday afternoon that every single family in Israel would have been sacrificing their perfect spotless lamb in preparation for the coming Passover the next day. So every single family, can you imagine in the pitch black, they're, they're getting things ready. They're trying to organize this, orchestrate this, and all of it's being done in the pitch black. The symbolism there is unbelievable. There has to be some kind of a moment as everyone knew what was happening on the cross. People had to wonder, what have we done? What have we done here? Who have we placed on the cross? We can bring the lights back up. This picture here is the picture of darkness, and it's symbolic throughout the Old Testament. This leads all the way back to the story of Exodus. You remember that when they're coming out of Egypt? In Exodus, the ninth plague, the ninth plague, if anybody remembers the order of the plagues, the ninth plague was complete darkness. Exodus 10 describes that plague of darkness as being a darkness that you could feel, a darkness that you could feel. So that's what their experience is. And what was the ninth plague right before? The 10th plague, there you go, glad we figured that out. The 10th plague, which was the sacrifice or the death of firstborn sons. Anybody catching some symbolism here? Some symbolism here? All of a sudden, all throughout the Old Testament, darkness always pointed to consequence or payment of something, that judgment was coming. And the reality was, is on that cruel Roman cross, what was happening there is Jesus Christ was absorbing the darkness of all of our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's what was taking place. That changes everything. That changes everything. That's what caused John the Baptist to, when he saw Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sins of the world. That's a change everything moment. God absorbing the penalty of my sin, your sin, 
our mistakes, our, our selfish acts, our uh, direct acts of rebellion, all of it being taken on the cross for us. That's a change everything moment. Continuing in the chapter, verse 51, we see the outcome and the result of that. It says, and behold, this is right after Jesus breathed his last breath, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let me give a little explanation there, a little backstory. This was all the way back to Adam and Eve with our willful rebellion, our choice to go our own way independent of our maker. Our sin created a separation or a divide between us and God. You say, well, how do I know that? Well, the prophet Isaiah is really clear on this. It says in Isaiah, it says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So there's a gap in between us because he's perfect and we're not, right? He's perfect and we're not. But God couldn't stand the idea of not being in relationship with us. So he established what you know of the Old Testament, a sacrificial system that provided a way back to a somewhat severed relationship, but better than no relationship. Any of you ever dealt with any degree of uh, credit card debt? We're not gonna have a confession time. We're not gonna have anybody stand up. But uh, American averages say that the average American carries about $5,700 in credit card de debt. Oh, wow. California wouldn't wanna be outdone though. We average 10,500 in credit card debt. So we're ahead of the race, all right. Uh, so uh, that's not where we're supposed to cheer. But here's, here's the idea. The reason I bring up credit cards is the way that a credit card works is every single month you get a statement in the mail and it gives you two options. You can either pay for the amount owed in full or what's the other option? Minimum payment, right? Minimum payment. Minimum payment is just the, the bare minimum payment that's gonna keep you in some kind of relationship with the visa company, right? Some kind of, okay, we're still okay here. I was reading online this week that if you owe $2,000, you owe $2,000 in credit card uh, debt, and you make a pay, if you're to make the minimum payment, who has a guess how long that takes to pay back? 30 plus years to pay that back. That's $2,000 of making the minimum payment. So all intents and purposes, $10,500, it's not really happening in your lifetime. You see this, this is the same picture that God is saying, you know what, we put in place a sacrificial system that was a minimum payment that kept the potential for us to have interactions with each other, but it never dealt with man's debt, with man's sin the consequence of his actions. All of a sudden that still needed to be dealt with by God. And so God in this arrangement between God and man had put in the, in the system here in the, the religious system in the temple had what was called the Holy of Holies. Have you ever heard of that place in the, in the temple? Kind of one section of the temple that was set apart, kind of the earthly dwelling place of God's presence. The Holy of Holies was a place where God, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and it was on the other side of a really big curtain. You can see where we're going here. It's about a 60 foot high curtain, about 30 feet wide and about four inches thick. So this is a legit cur curtain. Other uh, Jewish uh, historians describe this curtain of taking as many as 300 priests to actually manipulate the size of it. That's how huge this curtain was. 
So that's there separating the regular average Joe from God, kind of a, a, a regular constant reminder that our sin left us unfit for the presence of God. Our sin left us unfit for the presence of God. Once a year, maybe you guys know this, on the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, if you celebrate Jewish holidays, uh, once a, a year, the high priest, in this case, this would have been, what's the high priest's name? I forgot. Caiaphas. There we go. Glad, glad we're all on that. So Caiaphas would have gone in on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice as an atonement, as a partial payment for the sins of Israel. Once a year, that was the only time anyone went into the Holy of Holies. Are you tracking with me? This is a, a separation that was there. And here's what they did with the high priest. This, I found this interesting. I was researching a little bit. Is the high priest would have his long robes and at the bottom of his robes, they would have bells attached to his robe and then a rope attached to his ankles so that if things went poorly in the Holy of Holies, they could drag that guy back out. You know, they, they were like, hey, if the bell noise stops, start bringing them in, fish them in, guys. So this is, this is a picture of what's going on, the separation or the gap between a perfect God and an imperfect person. So what does it say? The moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, all of a sudden the text says, behold, the idea, it's the word idea, comes with the idea of shock or amazement or wonder. Behold, that temple or that, that curtain in the temple, 60 feet high, was ripped from bottom to top. No, from top to bottom. See, a lot of people think that it's our human effort ripping the, the separation that's gonna create the divide. No, it was God's intervention, his divine hand of ripping that curtain in two that provided a way back into the relationship that we were made for with our God. God created the divide, created the divide or we created the divide with our sin. He's the one that separated the divide. If you've spent any... Uh, time in the South, I enjoy a little bit of Southern hospitality. I love the twang of people with kind of a Southern accent. Anybody know someone from the South that has a little bit of a, a twang? I, I like when someone's welcoming you in and they'll say, and as you're coming in there, they'll say, come on in y'all. Anybody ever hear somebody that's always got y'all attached to it? In fact, say that to your neighbor. It's fun. Come on in y'all. That, that, that's, that's the idea of what's happening in this moment is God Almighty through the consequence of sin on his own son is saying what? Come on in, y'all. You're all invited. You're invited back into relationship with me. There's no longer you on the outside looking in. There's no longer the separation because of Jesus's finished work on the cross. This changes everything. This changes everything. The text continues. It gets even more intense. I don't know how that's possible. It gets more intense in the second half of verse 51. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Wait a second. That's just like three lines of pure craziness. You see what's happening here is people had rejected God, but nature and creation never had a problem recognizing who Jesus was, right? 
See, all the way throughout Jesus' ministry, whether it was water molecules changing water into wine, whether it's waves obeying his command, whether it's fish multiplied or fish swimming into nets, whether it's water solidified so you can walk on it, whether it's wind obeying his voice, it all obeyed his command. And so when he finally broke through the chains of death, what does it say? An earthquake took over the land. And this wasn't a minor tremor, right? When my wife and I first moved here from Illinois in our first year, we were introduced to our first little quake here. I remember we were in our upstairs bedroom and all of a sudden I look and I'm like, oh, the, the wall's shaking. What's, what's going on here? Like it was a little bit of, uh, of chaos. I'm like, well, why did I leave the safety of sweet Illinois? Like what, what's going on here? But that was like, like a millisecond. There was no rocks shattered with that earthquake. Like, does anybody remember that one? It was, it, it, it was no big deal here all of a sudden, to the degree, the, the, the size of this, rocks are breaking, tombs are being set, broken open. You know how a tomb would work with stones pushed in front of them. I mean, this was a major seismic event, all of it to put the exclamation mark on who it was that was crucified. Who was this man? Who was it? You see, these Roman soldiers, they had crucified literally thousands upon thousands of men on those same crosses. And this was something different, though. This was something different. Who was this God man? What would that be like? What would the experience as you're watching, as you're the, the, the soldier, and all of a sudden the lights have, it's been pitch black the whole time he's been on the cross. All of a sudden he breathes the last breath, the lights come back on and the world starts shaking. What would that be like? And then what does it say happened next? Dead people started coming out of the tombs. Like what, what in the believers that had perished are literally coming back to life. I feel like we kind of cruise past this, like, yeah, there's a lot going on there. Like what? Like, can you, can you imagine you've been to somebody's funeral and you're like, hey, Frank, what are you doing? Like, I, I, I thought you died a couple of weeks ago. What's, what's going on here? What in the world? We don't know what happened with them. Don't you guys wonder what happened to those guys? Did they live like a, their full lives out again? Like, are they hang out? Like, or was it just for a few weeks? I don't know. Go back in the tomb, shut the door. I don't know. But we'll find out at some point. But either way, it was a demonstration of one important thing. One important thing was demonstrated that no longer does death have a grip on us? No longer is there a fear of death. God in that moment had broken the spell that death had on us. He said, you know what? A believer has nothing to fear any longer because death had been defeated. That changes everything. That changes everything. For someone that's embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, all of a sudden the idea of your breathing your last breath, you're like, hey, no big deal. That's just only the start of what's to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. Death is not the end of our story. See, there's so much change that's going on. First, you're having sin dealt with, taken care of. You're having the, the separation between us and God taken care of. Now you're, you're seeing death being taken care of. All of this in moments on the cross. It changes everything. Probably one of the most spectaculars in the next couple of verses. See if you see it here. Verse 54 says, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, 
they were, were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. You know, nature has no problem responding, but sometimes the hardest thing to see any kind of change that needs the biggest miracle is the human heart, right? We're so stubborn to resist. No, I'm not letting that in. I'm, I'm just gonna fight it till my last breath. No, I'm not gonna admit my sin. I'm not gonna admit my need for a savior. I'm not gonna acknowledge my need for rescue. In this moment, the Roman centurion, here's the interesting details about the centurion is in a Roman culture, they believed in pluralism. They believed in many gods, lots of different gods. And in fact, they had acknowledged that Caesar, he actually went by the expression, he went by the expression or, or title, son of God, son of God. So when the centurion and his men are actually making this statement, it's a major act of treason. It's a rebellion. It's saying, I'm done with what this system believes. And I, I've seen the truth of who Jesus is. Kind of cool to think that he's literally the very first one to proclaim the deity of Jesus Christ. And think about what some of Jesus's last words on the cross were. What was the prayer that he prayed for the people that were executing? These are the guys that had, that had hung him up there, that had whipped him, that had pulled out his beard, that spat on him, all of the, the torture, the torment. And he'd said, what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't know. And so think about this. Many theologians would point to the fact that this is, this is the centurion and these men's conversion point where they acknowledge who Jesus was. The account in Matthew describes that they actually praised God at this moment. They praised God at this moment because it clicked in their mind of who this Jesus was that they just executed. They said, wow. This was someone different. This is someone set apart. This was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. The cool thing is, is that Jesus goes on to prove them to be right. How does he prove them to be right? In chapter 28, verse 1 through 6, you're familiar with this, the reason we celebrate this morning. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Again, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. You see, all of these moments in history, everything led up to this moment. All of them pale in comparison to God in an earth suit, literally rising from the dead. Literally, some of you are like, bingo, bingo, yes. Uh, rising from the dead, coming back to life, proving victory over the grave. It's a pretty awesome moment, a moment that changes everything, a moment that changes history from everyone in the past that was looking forward to it and all of us in the future that look back to it. It changes everything. 
For the next around seven weeks, Jesus, it wasn't like a question mark, like he showed up to, and showed himself to one person. He showed himself to hundreds of people. In fact, scripture describes over 500 people at one time as witnesses to his resurrected self. You're like, that's not something that people can debate or question. It's a question though, that what, what was the response? The, the disciples his disciples that were known for being kind of wimps, right? Kind of cowards, kind of pansies. All of a sudden there are these fearless risk takers willing to die for their claims of the resurrection because this changed everything for them. For us now, a couple thousand years later, we're left with that exact same choice, that exact same moment. What do we do with Jesus Christ? Do we believe and embrace his finished work on the cross? Or do we say, you know, I'm not buying it. Even though the, the Romans that killed him bought it, I'm not buying it. Even though the disciples bought it, I'm not buying it. I'm digging in my heels. You see, every single person, whether they realize it or not, their eternity hinges on their response to this message. Their eternity hinges. Their, the destination of their eternity hinges on what they do with Jesus Christ. I love how crystal clear Romans 10 makes it. it. says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not mind boggling. And the response he's saying, put your faith in him. Finally, bend a knee and acknowledge that he is the son of God, that he is Lord acknowledging our sin, we've blown it. That shouldn't be hard for us to be able to come up with. In fact, if not, ask the person next to you. You've blown it. You need a savior. That's the good news here that we gather around. Just wanna wrap up our service here this morning with two things. For the person that has embraced Jesus Christ, this should be a day of celebration. Now, I'll tell you, we should be going out of here as the most joyful, confident person possible. All of a sudden, the darkness of my sin is taken care of. The separation between me and my maker is gone. All of a sudden, the fear of death in the future, good riddance, that's the person that should come out of this service today. The person that's never embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is one of those moments. You can humbly come before him, even as I pray in closing, humbly come before him. He's waiting there. He's leaning in. What are they going to decide? Humbly come before him and say, God, I, I've blown it. I've fallen short of your perfect standard. I need you. I embrace your finished work on the cross as payment for my sin. I accept that. That's the moment. It's the moment that every person's life comes down to what they choose to do with. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to celebrate the miraculous. And there's no other way to describe the things that surrounded your death and resurrection other than the fingerprints of God. God, I pray that we'd come out of this morning with a new level of gratitude and an appreciation for the extent, the level that you went to reach out to us. We love you and praise you for that this morning. For the person this morning that can't look back across the landscape of their life and when they're reflecting on moments that change everything, they can't point to a time that they've made the decision to embrace you as Savior. I pray that even now in these moments as I'm talking, that they'd make the willful choice to speak to you. Simply, just acknowledging sin, admitting failure, 
asking for the forgiveness that you offer through Jesus Christ. You've made it so clear, so simple, yet so many resist so hard. My prayer is that in this moment, that would be some's prayer, someone's prayer here in this room. I would thank you for your grace, for your mercy that you intervened on our behalf, and we praise you now in song. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Jesus Christ, our living hope. I pray you go out of here with a new confidence, a new boldness in that living hope. If there's someone here that wants to talk about what a relationship with Jesus Christ looks like, I'd be thrilled to stay afterwards and talk with you. We have a couple volunteers also available to pray after the service if that's the way we can serve you as well. Otherwise, have a fantastic Easter. They're taking photos outside. If you want a family picture, make sure you do that. God bless. Eat a lot of donuts.